Okay, good morning, everybody. Welcome to this week's episode of Lifestyle Pirates. We are joined this morning by Jen. Oh, let me start again. I didn't introduce me and you. No, keep going. All right. Keep going. Morning, everybody. Love the blooper. <laughs> <laughs> good morning, everybody. Welcome to this week's episode of Lifestyle Pirates with me, Big J, and him, Adriano. Uru. We're joined this week by Jen Webster, who's the fundraising and community engagement manager at Rough Edges here in Sydney. How are you, Jen? Good morning. I'm great, thank you. Welcome along. Thank you for coming. Over from the Northern Beaches? Yes, all the way from the Northern Beaches. Much appreciated. How was the traffic? Traffic was fabulous. Mm. Marvellous, marvellous. Well, um, what I'm loving about this podcast that we're doing is we come against, come up against and hear against community a hell of a lot, and we're going to be talking about the communities that you're working with today. Um, and a big shout-out to Scott Duncombe, who actually connected the two of us as well. Thanks, so, Thanks Scott. Thank you very much to Scott. So tell us about Rough Edges, Jen. The Rough Edges is a community drop-in centre for people who are experiencing homelessness, but more than that, marginalisation and social isolation. Mm -hmm. So it's really a safe space for people who probably are on the the outside of society, on the margins of society. Now, homelessness makes sense. What's marginalisation? So marginalisation are people that feel like they don't fit in. So I love the history of Rough Edges. um, It was established by two churches as a safe space for sex workers and transgender sex workers working on William Street back in the 80s. Right. Right. So it's built on a model of inclusion and care for the most marginalised. We're finding more and more that it's people who are lonely that Mm. are coming. So they may have some form of housing. Mm. But they're looking for connection and for a, for a community that they feel um, that they're not judged, they're not, you know, they're not spurned, they're not looked down on. It's just, you know, a space that they're comfortable in um, with their own yeah. group. Yeah, perfect. And you've been there for just over a year. I think it's been around since 1996, is that right? Yeah, so in its current location it was started in 1996. Yeah. And so how did you arrive doing what you're currently doing? So I um, I didn't know what I wanted to be when I grew up, so I kind of fell into work and fell into the IT industry. Love that because it's so dynamic mm-hmm. and you know, it's a lot of fun. Um, but found over time that um, corporate just wasn't, you know, didn't provide the meaning that I wanted, you know, and I think becoming a parent changes your views on life um, and wanting more out of you know, the time that you spend in your workplace. So I was really lucky. I had a classic corporate job and wanted a bit more flexibility and was offered to do corporate social responsibility for a large organisation. That then was my introduction to charities and this, you know, I kept sort of dealing with all these charities and I call that the dream job. You're spending corporate money on good causes. It's like how, you know, there's nothing better. And getting paid for it as well. And getting paid for it. Um but I'd keep working with these charities and I'd think, oh, you know, that's such a nice space and it feels, you know, that, and all the people I met were pretty amazing, all do, you know, a range of causes. And I just thought, yeah, maybe this is something I should go and look into. Very good. And so did you come across Rough, uh, rough Edges in your role or how did that connection occur? No, so I, um, probably like a lot of us, live in a bubble and I used to drive to my bubble in Macquarie Park, I didn't have any visibility of people who might be doing it tough. Mm. You know, of course, you you know it's out there, but Mm. when you don't see it and it doesn't impact you, you're not, you know, really your awareness isn't there. So I I started commuting the first time. I'd commute into the city and I'd get off the bus and I'd see Rob, the big issue vendor at York Street, and then I'd see Stuart sitting there. And then I'd see Sarah down at QVB and I'd, I'd see all these people and I thought this just seems so wrong that in a country like ours where we have incredible wealth that we also have this incredible poverty. Mm. You think it's, it's the conditions are almost third world. But I, so I would sort of, you know, my journey was fairly slow. I would sort of see these people and I 
think, how did they get there? How, what on earth led them to be now begging on the street? So over time I'd stop and it would be a simple start with, oh, you know, would you like a coffee, you know, hi, and I'd just have a chat. And I'd get to know their stories. And the more that I got to know their stories, the more I thought everyone needs to hear these stories. Their stories are amazing. Mm. You know, there's these great characters on the street who are just the most beautiful human beings. Mm. What I love is you actually you just gave them more names as well. Mm. Yeah, or they have names. Oh, ab- abso- na- <laughs> ab- absolutely, but I guess it's, it's humanising them. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's it. Which is, which is amazing. We spoke before we press record on this show um, called You Can't Ask That on Netflix. Um, which we've just started watching, and you know, in the short the short episode that we saw, just taking a lot out of. You know, they they do speak to homeless people, and um, there's a there's it does humanise when you sit there and look at them uh, and hear their stories. Because I think one of the one of the I don't want to use the word challenge, but one of the blockers maybe is do you you know if you see um, a person experiencing homelessness, do you Give them money. Do you offer to buy them a coffee? How how does someone stimulate you know a conversation? And I think it's probably just easier just to carry on walking and rather than actually stop and pause. And so, how did you start a conversation with Paul and um, uh, the other the other two? Yep. Yeah. Um, so I look. My big thing is just acknowledge their humanity. You know, mm-hmm. if if you're not comfortable doing anything else, at least look them in the eye and and wave and smile. Mm. You know, just. Just acknowledge that they're there. So my friends on the street tell me the worst thing is that being invisible, mm. that mm. literally people walk past you and, and you know, your, your worth or your who you are is so diminished mm. by people simply ignoring you. Um, so for me, I guess I'm, a, you know, a bit of a curious person. I was like, well, you know, hi, can I get you anything? Um, and that, that simple act of saying, can I get you a coffee? Um, and then the coffee becomes this sort of opportunity to say, you know, is there anything else? So one of my first um, people that I got to know was this lovely man called Stuart. Now, Stuart is probably a typical case of, you know, the, the non-stereotype that people might assume about someone experiencing homelessness. So Stuart, like me, lived on the northern beaches. He'd had a workplace accident Um couldn't work, that put strain on his marriage. He's got three young kids, had the big house, the two cars, the whole shebang. Um, his marriage broke up and his wife said, well, you know, you need to move out because it's not working. So he moved out and quickly worked out that you can't afford to live mm-hmm. really anywhere as a single person. So he, um, you know, eventually found, you know, could have some housing initially and then, you know, found himself on the street. And it was like you just think this is someone, someone's brother, someone's yeah. mm. someone we know. Yeah, you know, Stuart's an educated, and, and not his fault, and not his fault. Yeah, not at all his fault. I mean, you meant stereotype is a massive thing. That's I don't want to kind of gloss past that because I think people do have a natural. It's their fault that they're on on the street. Um, does the media play a bit of a, a role in that? I mean, we'll get back to some other stories, but, you know, rather than framing it as the overall issue, uh, the overall issue of being, you know, people of experiencing homelessness, are they actually just drilling down too much on that person? And so the assumption is it's their fault that they're on the street. Hmm. I've never thought about that. I think... Yeah, I, I don't know if the media play a role. It's more, you know, you get back to the issue of why are there people on the streets? Mm. And there are people on the streets because there's not enough affordable housing. Mm-hmm. Like there's not enough appropriate and suitable housing. So when we talk about homelessness, one stat that you know, blew me away was that the visible part, so I'm talking about rough sleepers that mm. I see, mm. that's 7%. That's a tiny, tiny percentage of overall homelessness. So there are layers of homelessness and, the, and it's people sleeping in their cars, people in caravan parks, in temporary accommodation, people in boarding houses, in squats, couch surfing, mm. you know, that the, it's, it's much bigger yeah. 
than we see. So that's 7% or all of the other things collectively are more than 7%? 7% is the one you see on the street. Right. Yeah, 7% is the visible. So do we have an idea on what the overall percentage is of of those, I guess, variations? In terms of numbers? Yeah. So in New South Wales, there's 37,175. Now that figure is taken from the 2016 census. We haven't had a census since then um, to understand the numbers. There are rough sleeper street counts. Um, I participated in one at the start of 2020 Mm. on the northern beaches and was shocked to discover how many people are sleeping in their cars in the beach car parks. Again, you just don't see it. So when you said that 37,000, was it 37,000? 37,000. Are they rough sleepers or or that's that's overall overall um, homeless community or homelessness? Wow, that's a massive number. So what are the what are the kind of stories that you're seeing in the, in the community? So when people come in for a coffee into this this rough edges because it's a coffee shop ultimately, isn't it? It's a kind it, of cafe. Yeah, it's a cafe, and they come for a meal. Yeah. So what are the, what are the kind of stories that they're hearing? I can imagine you get a nice rapport, and you build relationships with these people as well. And, and so are you seeing them kind of help themselves out, or do you get to kind of just I use the word nurse, but just help them with their current situation? Like, how does that all work? It's Absolutely different for every person. So depending on their circumstances. So let's think of a couple of people. So um, so when I first started, you mentioned I joined just over a year ago. So I, and the week I started, it was like, okay, everyone, you're going to go work from home. I was like, no, I mm. need to see. And <laughs> as an essential service, we were able to stay open. And there were these two beautiful older men that I met, Jack and Andy, and um you know, I, I would sort of see them and have a little chat. And, but what I noticed over ensuing weeks is that they weren't coming for food. Mm. They were just coming to see each other. <laughs> so that human connection piece suddenly struck me. Um, we've got people who are – so we've got people that come to us in absolute crisis. So, you know, something's happened. Um, yeah, they might be dealing with mental illness. They might be, you know, they might be having a, a, an absolute down spiral. Um, you know, our model is we'll move them from crisis to sustainability or you know, at least just to, to have some sort of stable position. Now, we're not a refuge, so just to put that into context. So ours is really literally just come to us for services and I liken it to triage. So like in a hospital, you mm-hmm. go in and it's like, okay, what do you need done? So then we yeah. say, okay, do you need a referral to housing? Do you need, um, do you need your pet looked after? Your, does your pet need some work with pets in the park? Um, there's all sorts of things that people need. Do you need some legal support? Do you need you know, what? just what are the layers of support that you need? Mm. Um, and, look, everyone's so different. So that's sort of the extreme end. But then mostly we get people that just come to us every time we're open because they want to have a meal and they want to catch up. And they're at varying um, points in their life. So one example is Tony, and Tony actually is employed by us now as an urban walker, and he leads groups on walks around Darlinghurst and King's Cross, and he weaves his story into the walk. So he's it's an educational um, program that teaches people about urban poverty. But And Tony weaves his story. Now, Tony is probably just like you and I. Tony grew up in a middle-class family, um, went to a very good school, he happened to have an alcoholic, violent father. So, you know, Tony's life didn't go the way that, you know, you'd expect for anyone in his position. Mm-hmm. Tony, you know, that sort of threw him for a while. He left home, got into some youth home housing support. Once you're 18, you're on your own. You know, now he had he built a lifestyle but he was constantly dealing with the trauma of his childhood. So his life would cycle around and he might have a bender with alcohol and so Tony was very enterprising. He'd always get a job and he'd always get housing but he'd go on a bender to deal with the stuff he was dealing with and then, you know, wake up with a hangover, not get to his job, lose his job, not have money, lose his house. And that would cycle, cycle, yeah, yeah. would repeat many times over years. And for Tony at a point he just went, this life is not sustainable. I need you know, I need to do something. So he um, came and did some volunteering with us. I might have the order out of order, but um, he ended up doing some volunteering with us. And then once we got to know him and heard his story, went, you know, and he's so articulate. He's an incredibly smart man. 
and he's got a real, um, you know, he talks when he takes groups around about it costs more to keep people on the street than it does to house them. So if you think about someone's rough sleeping, mm. the justice, you know, so policing mm. costs, the health costs, so the in and out of hospital much more because mm. um, it's, you know, it's not a healthy lifestyle. Mm. And just the, you know, the services that it takes to keep someone on the street, it costs far less, and there are figures, uh, to put them in a house. Mm. Do you think as a, just an economic model, it makes far more sense to house people than it does to let them rough sleep? So why aren't we doing that? Oh, it's a bit of a political game. Mm. So it's, you know, New South Wales has systematically been reducing the number of social houses they have mm. um, and handing it over to the private sector. Yeah. But there's... I can't really speak to this, but I would guess there's more money in, you know, standard developments. You could take a block of land in, in a city and develop that into a commercial building mm. and make far more money than you would if you turned it into social housing. All right. So it's, it's a degree it's, of nimbyism as well where people think if there's a boarding house in their suburb, then it's going to attract the wrong type. And I'm yet to understand what the wrong type is, but... Mm. It's, it's not anyone I've ever met. Mm. So is it different in each state then? You mentioned New South Wales. So would Victoria, South Australia, that, that'll be different? That'll, yes. I guess, handle this you know, challenge differently? Yes. Right. I mean, and the issue is because of our government structure. So you've got local government. Mm. So Sydney City Council manage some property. Mm. Um, New South Wales government manage some. And then federal government. Um, federal tend to hand it back to the states to manage. But it, you, know, you would think as a policy, it would be far better to manage, um, you know, manage this as, a, as a Australia-wide. Sounds like a hot potato that no one wants to have it, you know, sort out. Yes. Yeah. Mm. What would you like to see in an ideal world? In an ideal world, I'd like to see just, you know, a focus on um, looking after our most vulnerable populations. Mm. So one interesting thing is at the moment 41% of people accessing homelessness services are women and children who've experienced domestic violence. Um, the other increasing stat, which has been the fastest growing for a number of, number of years, is that older women are falling through the cracks. So women who may separate late in life don't have, you know, may not have worked, they may have been stay-at-home parents, mm. don't have super... Um, you know, you can't get, as I said, housing's incredibly expensive. Yeah, it's, um, you know, we're, we're really failing our incredibly vulnerable population. So what I'd like to see is that there is an absolute national federal focus on housing that trickles down through the states, through to local, mm. and that we prioritise people. I mean, I, you know, the model of if you have a house and you have some money, then you can afford to support someone who doesn't. Mm. And I think, and that's why... Probably will ultimately end up being the community mm. that end up supporting, as they do at the moment. The city of Melbourne recently uh, criminalised, well, not recently. They were criminalising uh, rough sleeping, and uh, there was people at Flinders Station that got taken away, and it was a big thing that happened in Melbourne. What does that do to, I suppose, the outlook on people experiencing homelessness and the cause, and you know what you're trying to fight for and stuff like that? Because it seems like it's completely counterintuitive. Mm. They're sort of making a stigma by turning them, you know, just because you're experiencing homelessness homelessness does not make you a criminal. Yeah. You know, and that's sort of what that's sort of what you you see when you see that, you know, they've they've criminalized that and people around Flinders station have been taken away, so you automatically assume they're a criminal. Yeah. You know, it's it's crazy what what's that doing to the sort of um what you're trying to do in your in rough, um, in the what is it, rough edges? Mm. Yeah. I mean, they did the same thing in Sydney and Martin Place. Then I forget Gladys. What, yeah, yeah, Gladys. And they asked her what she thought about that, and she goes, "Oh, it just made me feel uncomfortable, so I wanted to get them around." Yeah. I can beg your pardon. <laughs> like you're supposed to be the premier of New South Wales, and you just said that. Yeah, Clover Moore doesn't really like her. I don't think. It's, my impression is that people who, you know, do that, put that stigma on mm. groups experiencing homelessness probably have never stopped to chat to someone mm. in that. Or if they have, it's been with an agenda. Yeah. Um, you know, you're absolutely right. That stigmatising and that moving the whole community. I mean, where are they going to go? Yeah. Like the Martin Place community, they, you know, to me it was fabulous because it put a spotlight yeah. on the issue and it was 
you know, I thought that was perfect. And Martin Place is still a hub. Mm. So every night there's different services that go down and provide barbecues and clothing and books and um, uh, health outreach. But you think where, so where are those people supposed to go? And my understanding is that that Martin Place community were pushed out sort mm. of to Redfern or to, you know, it's like. But that's not addressing the problem at all. Not at all addressing no. the problem. So I look. Sometimes I shake my head just thinking what, you know, at the end of the day these are human beings. Mm. So what, you just, and you think would you do that to your own, mm. you know, if your family were camping outside your house and you didn't like it, would you just, you know, pick them up and move them to mm. somewhere else? I just, it sort of defies me that we dehumanise groups because it doesn't suit, you know, it doesn't either look good or it doesn't, you know, it doesn't, suit mm. us to have that problem to deal with. But what's super interesting is like Darlinghurst as a community is so interesting. I call it my parallel universe because it's, you know, it, we have got this mix of life and that's, that's to me reality. You know, you've got rough, you know, people who are tough. You've got people who are talking to themselves. You've got people going off in the street. You've got people yelling at each other. And then you've got sort of, you know, incredible wealth walking through as well. Sometimes it's a bit of a rat run in front of our place when the cafe's open. You've got mm. people all hanging out the front and then you've got sort of the well-heeled um, people walking through. And to me that's that's reality. Mm. And you know, why there's a concentration there is because that's where the services are. Mm. And that's especially why there's lack of visibility. So before I started here I thought, right, if I really want to work in homelessness, so just sort of backtracking a bit, you know, I'd get to meet all these people and I thought, Maybe, you know, this became a bit of a passion and telling their stories became a thing. I thought maybe I need to work in this space. So before I did that I did some shadow work with a group in Manly and I thought, oh, there's no homelessness in Manly, surely. Well, there's lots of homelessness mm. in Manly. It's just not visible. And I would you know, propose there's lots of homelessness in every, well, not lots, but there's mm. homelessness in every suburb, but we just don't see it. And why... In Manly it's less visible is because there's smaller numbers so it's less safe. Mm. So, you know, when you've got a big community sleeping rough at either um, Green Park or um, Belmore Park, you know, there's and, and Central Station, there's quite, you know, there is a community and there's safety in those numbers. So, so, so going back to your transition, <clears throat> you know, from I guess big corporate to, to charity and, and, you know, not-for-profit work, how how was that for you? Um, look, I so I mean I loved my time in corporate. Mm. I found for me that I really wanted to have a job with meaning, and I mean it was an utterly selfish decision because you know I earn about half my income, um, and I probably work harder than I've ever worked in mm. IT. But it's I think part of it was also that I wanted a job that. Not only could I feel good about that, I felt that, you know, would reflect, you know, that my kids would go, okay, good, mum, you know. I just needed to do something yeah. that was, I felt, had more meaning for me and, you know, could use any of the skills I had and put them into a space where I could be helping others. So that would be one of the things you would, I guess, make people aware of. It's like if you want to, if you do want to work in this sector, it's, uh, it's, it's not, you know, company cars and, yeah, corporate corporate credit cards and expense accounts. No, no, there's none of that. <laughs> Someone the other day said, "Oh, I won't pay for admin fees," and I said, "Well, you don't have to worry about that. We don't have an admin. <laughs> I do my own admin." Yeah. So on that, I mean, so how do you guys? I mean, your 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 role is your fundraising and community. How do you raise money for for the charity and for the community? Um, so a lot of it is just hustling. Really, so we are lucky we have a few major donors that support our work and have kind of been involved. Um, you can give a shout out if you want. I'd um, also a lot of people, interestingly, in this space like to remain anonymous. Okay, but, sorry, um, I thought you meant corporates, sorry. Uh, no, no, no corporates. Love to meet some corporates. Any corporates <laughs> got some great opportunities for you. Um, actually, I am being getting some support from Atlassian at the moment, so I will give them a shout out. Perfect. Um, <laughs> But we have, yeah, so some major donors who just, you know, see that it's the right thing to do. Yeah. So they put some money into it. Have they been um, on the journey themselves? 
No. No, it's really interesting. Like, you know, there's some people who are connected to the cause mm. um, from through different avenues and others who just think, you know, this is this is the right thing to do. This is the right thing to mm. do. That was one of my, my other takeouts um on this little this little doco here as well was just the um spectrum of people. You know, it wasn't your typical you know, big chap, bushy, you know, long hair. It was young young ladies that just come from school or, you know, come out of school or come out of university. It was young mothers. Um, you know, and part of it was, you know, they they still take their kids to school, then they've got to work out where they're going to go and have a shower and how they're going to get food and then all that kind of stuff. So there's a massive, massive spectrum of people that are in this, this situation. We would estimate that around 90% of people who come to our service have childhood trauma. So unresolved childhood trauma. And if you think back to that story of Tony, mm. so Tony, you know, dealing with that kind of stuff, just it takes years. And so for some people they're stuck in this cycle and then you get others like Tony that just go, okay, I've got to, you know, I need to do something, mm. I need to move forward. And they can only do that when they're ready. You know, they are the experts of their own lives. So mm. we can't say to people, get your act together, move on, you know, come on, get over it. You don't ever get over stuff like that, that mm. you know. Um, Let's face it, when people get into a relationship as well or they have their own community, that brings out the best in them and can help them overcome. So if you haven't got that, then it's just going to be forever that vicious that vicious mm. circle. Um, and especially if you're feeling invisible, then it's just going to be towards the dark side than the bright side. Mm. The other misnomer is people say, well, just go and get a job. Yeah. You think about someone who's in unstable housing. How on earth your whole day and all of your energy is spent on finding food, finding things like a shower, um, thinking about where you're going to get a bed or a safe space the next night because some places are literally night by night. Right. So as soon as you get up the next day, you've got to be thinking about how to get housing again that next night. You know, how, where in that equation do you have time, resources, energy to think about, oh, well, yeah, I'll just send off that application for that job or mm. I'll just browse Seek or mm. you know, it's not, you know, we need to get people how, how to. How do they get on to Seek? <laughs> that's, exactly. Yeah, that's a classic. So a lot of, you know, people have phones but they won't have smartphones. So that whole, you know, you think about everything being moved to digitisation. Mm. Um, how do they access that stuff? Mm. If you don't have, you know, the latest smartphone and data, mm. you know, we've got people on prepaid plans, you know, on a basic phone. It's just, yeah, I think, you know, the world moves ahead but it ignores those most vulnerable. Mm. Is that something because I noticed at Rough Edges you've got, you know, the the, the, the Banksia Women piece which we can talk about. You've got the um, the community assistance. You've got the legal services, urban exposure. I mean, could recruitment be part of that? Is that perhaps on the roadmap for, for, the, for the charity? Recruitment? As in help, helping them to place them in, helping them, you know, your, the community to say, look, we've partnered with someone, you know, that if, if you do want to, if you get a job or volunteer, then we've got someone to help you along with that. Yeah, that is such a beautiful segue because I was trying to think, how do I slip in? So one of the things <laughs> last year. I, we, do, I told you I'd like to talk. Yeah. <laughs> so last year we um, thought, essential service, but we had to, like most cafes and things, move to a takeaway model. Yeah. So we – and that – I mean a lot of the magic at Ruffy's, as we call it, is inside mm -hmm. and people just hanging out together and someone will start up, someone will get on the piano and play. Some, you know, someone might have, be watching the football on TV. Someone might be playing a game of Scrabble. You know, it's all this sort of activity that's happening inside um, alongside our volunteers that are there. So Rough Edges at Night, just to explain that, is totally volunteer run, mm. which kind of did my head in when I started. It was like, well, but, but um, our volunteers are fully trained in um, things like nonviolent communication and boundaries and addiction and just understanding all of the issues about the people that we're supporting. So last year people couldn't come in. We thought, how do we, if they can't come in, how do we take Rough Edges out? So we started um, a couple of new skills programs, still trying to – anyone with um, ideas on a, a refresh of that word, um, that name, we're happy to take it. So we started, with the help of a lovely local chef, a cooking program. I just said to people, you know – so we asked the 
patrons, as we called them, what would you like to do? And so had this laundry list and out came cooking and photography. So we started cooking with um, the local chef and had this, again, saw this group that, disparate group that didn't know each other. By the end, by the first couple of weeks, they were all laughing and they'd built this community. And again, that's part of it. It's you know, The end goal might not necessarily be a job as a kitchen hand or a cook. The end goal might just be that we've, you know, formed a mini community there, mm. another support group for each other. Yeah. But it's also something for them to look forward to as well, you know. If, right. if you've got your photography course, you know, once a week, then they would live for that, you know, yeah. um, in the same way that people look forward to going on a holiday or going to the gym or what have you, you know, to have that thing as part of their week and their, their routine. That's such a big headspace. Yeah. Mm. And that's right, that routine. <clears throat> so the photography is a great one and this is exactly where, you know, I'd like to see it evolving. So we started photography last year thanks to the help of a group called the so Professional Photographers, the Australian Centre for Photography. And that has just blossomed. And so people have gone through now a couple of courses and they've had some private mentoring. And that actually culminated in us last week going to an event where we pitched for funding for this particular program. But we took one of the students from the photography program and she was their official photographer <laughs> and took some stunning photos. And so that would be my goal is, you know, how do we, even if we inspire people to want to go on to further study, you know, just, you know, what's next? That whole, you know, what are the goals that you want for yourself in your life and how can we help empower you to get there? The cooking one's good as well because I can imagine that skills that they can they can use when they're out and about and when they are kind of, getting food and, and trying to support their families or what have you, they can use those skills as well. Mm. And also, you know, food, you know, so much of our social lives are built around food. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, Preaching food to the converted that. there, Jen. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I'm built for comfort, not for speed. <laughs> um, you know, and then, you know, a future goal for the cooking one would be come and do, be part of the cooking program, but then you're cooking meals that go back into rough edges to mm. support other people. Mm. So it's this lovely circular mm. community you know, and out of that, like out of photography, we'd love to see people like Grace who came and took the photos last week, you know, rise up and be like a peer leader yeah. within the photography group and start off a special interest group where they meet once a week. Another thing I'd love to do is get the photography students to go and take photos of all of our very cool street art mm. and turn those into greeting cards that we can sell. Yeah. So kind of build a social enterprise around the skills of the people that we're supporting. Yeah. Well, well, I do some other events as well, so maybe we'll get one of them to come along and, and take photos at our mm -hmm. events, which yeah. we can, we, we'll talk about that. Um, I'm glad you mentioned the training because um, in the same way that I was referring to, you know, people walking on their commute and maybe uh, apprehensive around engaging in conversation, that would be one of my things if I said, well, I want to get involved with this, but I've never dealt with this or I, I don't know how to mm. you know, diffuse a situation or things like that. So what's the training mm -hmm. like? Um, so I did my training in February. So I just to explain about me. So I, my previous role in another organisation, I was so inspired by the caseworkers that I sat next to that I went back and retrained um, as a caseworker. So I'm trained but I'm not brave enough to use those skills yet. I think I'll just stick with my business <laughs> skills. Um, but the training is, I think it's incredibly eye-opening and that whole skill around nonviolent communication is just diffusing. So in terms of if people, you know, thinking what if people go off at me or, you know, I've had people yelling at me or I've had people walk past people who are yelling, you kind of know when to engage and this is what I guess it teaches you is when do you engage or when you don't, you know, when do you kind of shut the door? Mm. One great story I heard was we had a chap, this is one of our volunteers, a chap was sort of raising his voice and Robin in the end said, sorry, I think I was going to give him an, um, a pseudonym, but, you know, Mick, you're scaring me, you're frightening me. And it just, he just went, oh, I never meant to frighten you. Mm. It just toned it right down. Mm. One of my favourite stories is I, you know, when I walk around Darlinghurst, often see a lot of our patrons and, and saw one of our patrons and said, ah, oh, hi, Joe," And she turned around and said, piss off. <laughs> and I said, fair enough. You don't feel like talking, you don't look... Anyway, and I thought nothing of it. Yeah. But weeks later, I was standing out the front of Ruffy's and, and Joe came up and she said, Look me. And I said, Hi, Joe, how are you? 
And she looked me up and down and said, a few weeks ago you asked me how I was and I told you to piss off. I want to apologise for that. Wow. I was amazed that she'd thought about it. Mm. Because I just went, look, I loved your honesty. Mm. You know, I think maybe we could all do it a bit more like, (laughs) not at the moment, thanks. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So, yeah, I haven't, you know, there's, I think you just learn that it's, it's not about you. It's if someone else is going through their stuff mm. and they might be angry and they might be having a hard day. You know, there's one beautiful man and he's sort of up and down and I've seen him kind of pulling all the weeds out the front of all the plants rather out the front of St Vincent's. And I was going, hi, Matt, how are you doing? And it's kind of been enough that he's gone, oh, yeah, okay. <laughs> <laughs> and then, yeah, I walk on because I'm like, <laughs> that's a whole long involvement. Yeah. Um, so it's not like a certificate that you come away with. It's more It's more just life skills training. I would absolutely call it life skills. Yeah. yeah okay. So the training program that we give for our volunteers yeah. is um, is definitely life skills. Yeah. And and have you seen, I guess, you know, King's Cross has been in the press a hell of a lot over the last few years with the, you know, the development and the changes and I guess the the, um, the police activity and the King hits and things. Have, has that impacted what you've seen at, at Rough Edges? Is there, have you had more patrons, less patrons? Um, during COVID, so I mean, I can probably only speak to the last year, but in before COVID, they were getting anywhere from sort of 70 to over 100 people a night for a meal. Wow. Um, during COVID, when they first housed everyone, and this is interesting, back to that conversation about mm. housing, I mean, when there's a political will, we can do it. We can absolutely house people. So people were all, uh, people who were rough sleeping were all put up in hotels. Mm. And, you know, granted the hotels were empty, but I think it just, to me, shows us that we have the, we can do it when mm. we really want to. Um, so the numbers did drop off but, and we're seeing them now that Job Seeker has dropped off. Mm. Um, we are seeing the numbers creep back up. We're also seeing quite a few new faces turning up. So there's, um, yeah, there's just... The numbers have fluctuated mm. quite a bit. Sorry, I'm losing my train of thought. That's okay. And and are this, uh, I guess are the stories the same? You know, I mean, is it is it still? You know, I guess domestic violence and lo- losing their way, that kind of stuff. Is that all still? There's no end in sight for that. Yeah. Look, I think you know, in terms of the domestic violence piece, you know, that we need to keep shining a light on. Mm. You know, Stuff like domestic violence thrives in in the darkness mm. and when no one speaks about it and no one stands up and calls it out. Mm. Um, I met a fabulous couple just a few weeks ago. They had just come up from Melbourne, moved to Sydney, I think, you know, want of a better life. Um, and this is the other thing, you know, I talked before about Darlinghurst being quite busy, so but the services are there. So there's a, a, another lovely couple who he grew up in Ipswich and I forget she grew up in the country. Um, and they're in Sydney because they've both got chronic health issues and they need to be close to the services that can support them. Mm. So that's often why there's this concentration um, in the inner city. But this, back to this couple from Melbourne, they were just you know, punky and mouse and they're just fabulous, mm. fabulous. The mo- a couple of the most interesting people I think I've ever met. He's this sort of multi-talented musician, can just apparently, you know, heard a piece on the piano and then just played it. And, oh, wow. Um, we've got a couple like that, a guy that taught has taught himself to play piano by ear um, and he'll often just come in and play play piano for us. And it's a bit, you know, that's also a relaxation for them. It's just sort of a way to, you know, work soothing, I suppose. That sounds a bit condescending but, it's, you know, it's, it's probably a great outlet for someone yeah. who mm. needs to express their talent or their what they're going through. Yeah. When you play an instrument, you sort of disconnect from everything else mm. that's around you. You know, you just sort of go into that moment. It's great. Yeah. You find it quite meditative, don't you? Yeah, it's lovely. It's lovely when you, you know, you create nothing from, uh, sorry, something from nothing. Yes. <laughs> when, you, when you create nothing from nothing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Story of my life. <laughs> I don't know. We've been doing this a year. Yeah, episode 52. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. That's something from nothing. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, how would you like to... To, I guess try and break down the stereotypes, you know, to try and get rid of this misunderstanding from the you know, the general public around 
persons that are experiencing homelessness you know is it is it how they got there who they're with you know how would you like to see that that kind of start to un, unfold and get more understanding i think i mean as we were saying before my big thing is let's humanize it mm. so you know and if that means that more people are inspired just to at least say hello mm. to someone on the street mm. you know, um you touched on before about you know what do you do do you give the money do you buy them something you know, I happily give people, you know, I love supporting big issue vendors. I mm. think that's a, a quite a good model. Um, you know, I will give people money and I've had other people go, oh, you know, but what if they do, what if they buy drugs with it? What if they do this? And it's like that's their choice. Mm. You know, that's dignity of having the choice mm. yeah. like the rest of us do. Yeah, people it's have not, a job and they buy drugs. Yeah. It's no difference, yeah. And, you know, think about drugs What's Brené Brown says the opposite of addiction is connection. So think about why people might have addictions to mm. drugs or alcohol and it's because they're disconnected from the world or society. Mm. So uh, to me that makes absolute sense. Mm. That, you know, you're looking for something to fill. You're numbing you know, the pain. Yeah, mm. just numbing and, you know, numbing what you're missing. Mm. Um, so I think first step, just, you know, humanise, say hello, you know, if you'd like to know more in a safer environment, come and do an urban walk with us. Come and hear from, um, you know, people with a lived experience of homelessness. We've got three key walkers and all of their stories are very different. Um, and, again, they're people like you and I. They're just mm. people whose lives have taken a different path. Mm. And when do the urban walks happen? So we run them on demand. So they run as... Um, People want to happen. So next week, for example, we've got um, – and this is where the corporate piece can come in and we can tailor them. So I've got a group coming from a pharmaceutical company. They're going to go on an urban walk and then come back and we're going to do a panel discussion about mental illness because they deal in brain disease all the time but they mm. don't actually talk to people with lived experience. This right. is a great opportunity for people working in a space to understand more about what it's really like. Yeah. Um, another group are coming the following week um, and they're going to go on an urban walk and then come back and we're going to talk about resilience because if you ever want to meet people or understand resilience, you go and talk to people that have, um, have a lived experience of homelessness because mm. you have to be resourceful, very hopeful and incredibly resilient. Mm. So, yeah, so we um, – and we do a lot of school groups. So a lot of particularly private schools do service learning um, so they'll have groups go and – participate in different activities and part of that might be coming on an urban walk with us. Yeah. So they can be during the day, on a weekend, in an evening. Yep. It's, it's kind of you yeah, we just tailor have them. the conversation and see when, when it can happen. So one thing I propose to quite a few groups is either come and do one in a late afternoon and then go out for a team dinner mm. um, or, you know, if you need to want to do half a day, then come and do it and, and then go and have lunch or come and, you know, clean out roughies or do, you know, find mm. something for you to do. Um, yeah, so we we do do them as required. And and what's the um, what's the kind of feedback and response that you've you've seen from some of the groups? So funny, I was reading a couple of surveys yesterday, and it's um, what was one? I mean, people are always often a bit gobsmacked that they don't realise, probably a bit like me, that they didn't realise how prevalent it was. Mm. Um, they also didn't really understand the path of how someone might get to experience homelessness and, and why would you unless you've mm. had to or you work in this space. Um, Grace, one of our um, walkers, you know, her story's a fascinating one and, and her story centres a lot around addiction. Mm. Um, hearing Grace's story, just sidebar there, inspired me to go and have a look more into because we demonise um, illegal drugs. But I went and did some research and was kind of shocked but really not surprised to understand that more people die from um, prescription drugs, mm. opioids, yeah. and alcohol and smoking than they do from heroin. Mm. It's like, oh, you know, and yet so much focus is put on, you know, illegal drugs. And you go, and yet, you know, alcohol <laughs> is this supported industry mm. and the government happened to make a lot of money out yeah, of it. Yeah, it's crazy. Yeah. In America, most of the people that get onto actual heroin started off with opiates. Oh, you know, wow. they, they started off with um, 
painkillers and stuff like that. And then after a while it was just cheaper to get heroin. So then they've moved from, you know, those those medicinal or pharmaceutical grade drugs into shit that's just made in toilets and oh. and whatnot. So yeah, the epidemic started pretty much from big pharma. So wow. it's it's pretty heavily regulated over here though. Yeah. From from the opioids. So yeah, my wife's just had a, a back operation and she's been on some serious painkillers, which they are opioids. Yeah. Um and it's yeah, they were coming out of a safe from the pharmacy, and it was right. Who are you? Who are you picking these up for? Show me ID. It was it was pretty pretty wow. heavy. Mm. Um, wasn't allowed too many, yeah. so, which is uh, which is a good thing, hopefully. Yeah. But it's a, it's a valid point on your side. Mm. Um, tell me about this rough. Oh, I'm not, I'm gonna I'm gonna bugger up this rough tober <laughs> <laughs> in October. <laughs> That's why I'm getting confused. This rough tober event in October. That yes. that's I'm not gonna say it sounds fun, but it sounds like a great um initiative to raise awareness and, and obviously get some funding and uh, for you guys. It'd be like extreme camping. Look, I've, I'm more of a glamper, uh Jen, I won't lie to you, but you know. Well, my joke last year, because I did do it, I don't even do camping. Like yeah. I'm not yeah. That's so. And put in a position where it was like you don't have an option to not rough sleep. It yeah, so Roughtober is um, put on on the last Friday of every October and it's a community sleep out, but it's our major fundraiser. So it raises probably a third of the income that we get for the year. Um, and it's, um, yeah, there's something I, you know, again, not having done it, I couldn't mm. see or envisage. I'm very visual. I couldn't understand how it would work or what was the magic in Roughtober, but it's something about this bringing this whole community together to experience, have the same experience. So last year um, we kept thinking, okay, COVID go away, COVID go away, COVID's not going away, okay, we're going to have to go virtual. So we had a virtual sleep out but we could accommodate a small number of people at Rough Edges or at Darlow. And um, so we kind of had this parallel virtual broadcast of for people that were sleeping out either in school halls or gardens or other areas, um, while I had this group running, the, you know, the live event at Darlinghurst. I um, So we had some people who wanted to do the extreme sleep out and they were sleeping in, next to, so where our building's next to a church, mm. a building's actually under the church hall, so next to the church were people sleeping rough outside and I was sleeping on a rough on a balcony. It was rough um, above there, and all the doors were open. Just the noise alone at three in the morning, like you know, trucks were going over a speed hump, and you can hear every axle. Mm-hmm. Um, pe- yeah, it was it was illuminating, and yet something you just think you just don't. You know, I did it once and was wrecked for about a week. Right. Um, wow. Only, I mean, I, I couldn't sleep because I had this sort of duty of care for the people yeah. that were there thinking, okay. And I just, I honestly could not sleep because it, <laughs> it was such an interesting experience. I get to do it again. We've got a, a school, a private school who are coming to do their sleep out with us in a few weeks and they're like, <laughs> which responsible adults are going to be there? Yeah. And mm. I'm like, oh, okay, I suppose that's me. Yeah. When, um, when it said perks of the job in the job description, that's not what you imagined. <laughs> <I can>, um, <laughs> yeah. Look at it, it's something about it just works. So people, anyway, people come, they, we talk a lot about some of the issues. They all go out on urban walks with our walkers and they come back and we reflect and we just talk about, and this sort of taps into a bit what people find on when they do go on a walk, is that it's, it's you know, I think you can have all the empathy in the world but then actually doing it mm. once, you know, and then going home to your comfortable bed, it just gives you that, tiny, tiny insight into what that might be like for someone to do it even on a, a short-term basis. Were there any, because I assume, had you started your role and then you did the sleep out, mm. so were there any additional takeouts? Did, did that, I guess, really highlight your purpose and, and your why actually doing that for the evening as well? Um, I think that I was in kind of event manager mode, so I think... I think the why for me really comes back to the people mm. and the talking to people that come to Rough Edges and getting to know them and their stories probably keeps reinforcing the why. Mm. And particularly, you know, when you have you see people and we have 
supported them along with other services because we you know that's the lovely thing about not for profit it's so collaborative mm. you know so we work closely with wayside and the other services nearby with St Vincent's yep. um with the drug and alcohol group you know we're all working to the same purpose mm-hmm. so we're all working to support the people um move into some sort of housing and or and have a quality of life so I think just getting to know people's stories and understanding why, you know, how we can help them. If we can help someone move into housing and then from there, because once you've got housing, then you can start looking for a job. Mm. So, you know, we've got some lovely stories of people we've supported to get into housing and then they've picked up a part-time job and mm. then they've been able to get a pet and, you know, and just their life, you know, and then they might circle back and come and do a photography program. Yeah. It's like about this, um, like Maslow's hierarchy of needs. Mm. Yeah, that's, that's one of the basics. Is a roof over your head? Very much. Yeah. So the basic is, you know, safety. Yeah. And and food. Yeah. So okay. Yeah, we talk a lot about Maslow's hierarchy yeah. of needs because it's you know you do that and then you know what's the top line? You work to self um, enlightenment. It's not self enlightenment, but I can see the triangle and mm, I, I can't yeah. think of them, but <laughs> but I know what you mean. We'll, we'll put the image. We'll put the image up. So, so you mentioned something there, which is really, which is awesome. It's the collaborative with the other community um, spaces. So, the kind of short, long term goal for Ruffies and that community is to actually get get your patrons in houses, in in safe housing. How do you measure that progress? Um, do people have to register? You know, when they come in for food. I mean, are you are you seeing more or less of the people? How are you? I guess tracking. The program, so do we track our it? impact? Yeah, or? yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I mean, we, you know, a lot about our space is, you know, people, so we have people that come in for a meal and then they go. Mm. You know, they may not want to engage and that's absolutely fine. We yep. have people that, you know, come and they settle and they get to know us. So a lot of it is built on trust. So mm. people need to trust you because, you know, sometimes they've been so let down by systems and services that it's it becomes a personal relationship. Mm. So um, how, I mean, we kind of do a few measurements. One is simply just you know, we measure meals. So we work closely in terms of the collaborative piece with Oz Harvest to provide meals and food to us. Yep. Um, you know, what we try and do, because think about, you know, if your life is, is unstable, you know, you don't want to be having to run to Centrelink or run to this service or run. So we we try and bring all the services to us. So... So, for example, once a week, Orange Sky Laundry come. So people know that on a Friday they can bring their laundry and they can have a shower and they can get that done. Um, Once a month we have a clothing outreach. They come and bring clothing. So if people do need extra bits of clothing, um, that's there. Uh, Tomorrow, for example, Pets in the Park. Now, Pets in the Park is this fabulous service um, that come and they provide free veterinary services to people. Mm. You know, a great comfort to a lot of people. Um, who are experiencing homelessness or in have unstable housing is that they've got an animal, a companion animal. Yeah, that's a huge thing for all of us that that love animals. Mm. Um, so pets in the park is this great service. Last where are we? Last night we had a haircut group that come short back and sidewalks come in once a month and provide free haircuts because you know again giving people that dignity. Yeah, just about you know let's get you a haircut and you know, we all know a haircut can you know, sometimes make you feel. A million percent. Totally. Yeah. Yeah, So it's bringing all the services to people rather than making them run around to different points. Yeah. And and that must be so good for for corporates. That that must give you, you know, it must help with your your journey to see that corporates want to get involved. I wouldn't have thought about the haircut thing. You know, but but someone's gone. Hey, we can we can mm. we can give them we can give a few hours of a night and and just be there, and then people can do that, and that's something that you can add to your service. So that must give you um, some reassurance is the word I'm looking for that other companies and other people are starting to think a little bit more about how they can get involved and and you give their time and their services, which which must bring a smile to the face. Yeah. So how big's the team at Rough Edges? Oh, we're four point five. <laughs> the point five is our half a lawyer. <laughs> <laughs> She's not half a lawyer. She's um she works two Stay half short. days a week. <laughs> not that there's anything wrong with that. No, no, um, no, she works two half days a week or a few hours. So um yeah, there's you know, literally four of us. So it's it's also that case of, you know, if 
odds half a span turns up and no one else is there, you go and do it. Yeah. And that's, you know, and the, the door goes and someone's looking for food or a social worker or something, you know, we're all intimately involved in mm. the running of the organisation. Is it breakfast, lunch and dinner or just dinners? We So we're open six nights per week, um, every night except Saturday, and then two days. And the days that we're open, that's Wednesdays and Fridays, is when our social worker, um, again, part-time social worker, is there. So we're right at this point where we would love to grow and we have plans to grow. So we could effectively double our staff because we could do with another social worker inside Rough Edges We could do, and it could also run the programs. Um, we could do with another case manager to work on our domestic violence service um, and I'm looking for another person to help me with fundraising. So, you know, we're kind of right at that point of, you know, we can grow <clears throat> and, you know, with growth, um, you know, that can be painful but it could also mean that we can do so much more. Mm-hmm. But to do that I need to raise some money. Yeah. And, and what's, like, who would be your dream if someone came in with a, with a magic number? I mean, are we talking millions? Are we talking thousands, hundreds of thousands? What what would be that? So what you've just uh, kind of described in terms of that next step, what's the dollar number you would need? So we're a half a million dollar organisation. So yeah. we're tiny in the scheme of, of a lot of places. Mm. Um, I've set myself a challenge to raise 100,000 by 30th of June. So, and I've got a few campaigns. This, this year? So this, this financial year? year. Yeah. How, are we, how are we going? Um, so I've got three campaigns underway um, to do that. So just one of them is with the, the private school. Yep. Another is um, celebrating our 25 years, which yep. is this year. Um, and so we've got some activities that are that are going on to try and stimulate that. So Confident you're going to hit the, the number? Um, oh, look, I like to, you know, like to give myself a challenge. Yeah. So, yeah, I'm pretty confident. Brilliant. That's brilliant. Um well, before I ask my question, I actually just I want to thank you for your patience this morning because um, we, Adrian and I obviously aren't well adept in this subject, but we were very keen to to learn a bit more and I guess give our audience an opportunity to learn a bit more as well. So um, thank you for, for taking the time on that one. Oh. Um, the question we always ask at the end of every podcast is if you have a, a dinner book for four and you can invite three guests, who would they be and why? Oh... I should have really prepped for this one, shouldn't I? Um, this is what we like. So um, I'm reading um, Jacinda Ardern's book. So I love Jacinda Ardern yep. and what she stands for and just the way her model of leadership. Mm-hmm. To me that's, you know, that's a, a, a model I would aspire to. Mm. Um, there's a fabulous Dutch. Oh, the other one would be Malcolm Gladwell because I love his stuff and I just think he's interesting. And then the... Um, Third, is that four including me? Including okay. you. So the other would. Be In all fairness, we've had people that have booked their own private dining room, so it's okay. <laughs> they, they've just gone on because they've. They, oh, this person, this person, this person. Um, there's an author that I love. He's a Dutch guy called Rutger Bregman, and his. Um, so it's funny. All of mine tend to be authors, um, but he's written a book called Humankind, mm-hmm. and it's. I mean, I think you know when you do change your model of the world. So for me moving from IT to working in not-for-profit and particularly in this space, um, and we're very frontline, meaning that, you know, I spend my days talking to the people we support rather than mm. it being theoretical. Mm. Um, so it's very real. So I tend to be reading, I find myself reading material mm. that falls in with that. Um, so, yeah, Rutger Brigman wrote, he wrote, um, oh, no, oh, the Utopia for Realists which was a stunning book and so then I had to follow up and, and read his second book. So, mm. And it's just it talks about exactly some of the things we've spoken about, this model of, you know, if you looked after the most vulnerable people in your society, what would society look like then? Mm. You know, if governments actually stepped up and said, so I read a great, um, I think it was a Twitter post and it had, okay, no more billionaires once you've made $999 million, every cent after that goes to health and education. You know, you can get a trophy that says, I won capitalism and we'll name a dog park after you. <laughs> I thought that is, you know, like how much is enough? Yeah, that's true. And money does not, you know, the things that people that we support teach me is that 
You can't take money with you. Mm. And money itself has no meaning. Mm. You know, it's, it's the, what you do with your money mm. that provides the meaning. Um, so, yeah, I tend to be reading stuff that's about you know, just societies and um, more equitable civilizations. Mm. So. Brilliant. Mm. I like it. Thank you very much for coming on today, Jen. Um, how can people get a hold of you and how can people do their bit? So is there a Rough Edges website? Tell us a bit about that. Okay. So we definitely have a website. Mm-hmm. It's just um, roughedges.org.au. Mm-hmm. We'll put the um, link in the description as well. Yes, I think it's just org. I'm going to have to check that. Um, I'm on LinkedIn yep. if anyone wants to find me, Jen Webster. And, yeah, we certainly are on socials as well. But, yeah, we'd love to have groups come and do an urban walk because that kind of makes it real. Mm. And especially hearing someone's story, um, you just kind of go, that could be anyone we know. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah, we'd love to um, have people reach out and, and find out how they can do some work with us and help me get to that 100,000. Yeah. Awesome. <laughs> Easy. Thank you so much, guys. Lovely to chat with you. Pleasure. Thank you very much. Thanks, Jen.